Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, what's the latest on Canadian politics, especially after the Canada Day long weekend? Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, will join us to talk about that. Why could Canada be paying for the economic warfare against Russia for a long time to come? Heather Schofield writes about it in the Star, and she'll join us. And we expose the myths that support drug price controls and harm our healthcare system. All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Kind of a day weekend. Uh, and traditionally, of course, there has been a big celebration at uh, Parliament Hill. And uh, it's been scaled back, certainly, there, you know, because of COVID, there were some problems. But uh, this year, there was a little bit of trepidation uh, because of one of the ongoing uh, protests that was happening there as well. But crowds of people decked out in red and white did cheer as the Prime Minister gave his patriotic speech at the Canada Day Party in Ottawa. Uh, the Prime Minister told the crowd that there is no challenge too great if Canadians face it together. And that's what the flag represents. It represents our accomplishments and our desire to improve. Every time we see the maple leaf, let's remember the values that it stands for. Compassion, hope, and responsibility. Justice, openness, and hard work. Let's remember that while we're 38 million people living in six time zones from coast to coast to coast, we only have one country to share, protect, and cherish. So those were the Prime Minister's words, but as we mentioned, uh, there were other groups in Ottawa, uh, not there necessarily to celebrate Canada Day, but uh, to protest a number of government initiatives. And there was a, a great deal of trepidation about what kind of an impact they were going to have. Uh, that and other stories, uh, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull is the Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, I hope you had a good Canada Day weekend. Thanks for being with us this morning. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. And I did have a good weekend. Uh, what was your read on this? I mean, there was a concern here. And, I, I, you know, you and I talked about this last week, that Ottawa police uh, were ready this time for, for everything. And they, they were, I guess, uh, proactive as opposed to reactive that was going on. There, there were some limitations about where you could go and where vehicles could go in Ottawa. Uh, by all reports, it seems as if things were pretty tame there this weekend. Yeah, like I think you're right that there was a sense of readiness, right? And I think a lot of expectation and and pressure on on you know from the public to the police to make sure that things didn't get out of hand. That there was an expectation that you know people there was going to be a lot of people coming to the hill. Some of them are going to be there because they want to celebrate Canada Day. Some people are going to be there because they are really looking to make a point around um, some of the things that they. Are taking issue with in terms of the government in terms of what we've been living for the past couple of years and so there was a possibility for things to get tense but i agree with you um i saw some some videos on twitter um i think it was thursday night that were pretty kind of disturbing but uh, but apart from that i think things went okay it sounds like it yeah and well that was the expectation because of the people that were coming into town and uh to the surprise of no one i guess mm-hmm. as uh, some of the protesters uh rolled into ottawa uh, they were met uh, by Pierre Polyev, who, of course, is uh, the, we're told, the front runner for the uh, conservative leadership campaign, who has been quite vocal about this. And uh, he's uh, pretty much tied his wagon uh, to these kinds of protests, hasn't he, Laurie? He has. I mean, he has been unapologetic about being present 
on the hill with the with the convoy the first the first time around right like when it was there in january and february he was up there he has picture taken and it's interesting i think at this point that when it you know it's in a very different form that a, that a form of convoy is coming back around and very different realities in terms of how it's being managed in ottawa like wellington street right in front of parliament hill is all closed like you can't drive up there that kind of thing but it's interesting with respect to what's going on in the conservative leadership because it's so quiet now. Like, I mean, they've had their big announcement with respect to how many people they've signed up, but there's no debates. There's no more people to sign up. You can't do it anymore. So it's kind of a quiet time. And we're seeing some speculation around whether Patrick Brown will wait this out, like whether it will, he'll actually go right to the end or if he's going to jump off and go to the, you know, run for mayor again kind of thing. And Pierre Polyev managed to get a lot of attention, not that he's not getting any already, but he got a lot of attention drawn to him over the past weekend because of his presence, because of the you know video we put out, because of being part of this thing. And I think one of the things that has been um, a thorn in his side, even though he's obviously the front runner, is that Leslin Lewis has been accusing him of not being conservative enough, of being opportunistic and his support for the convoy. So I think it seems to me that he had to make a decision, right, about where he was going to land and whether he wanted to show back up and do this. And of course, his writing is in Ottawa, right? So like if he hadn't shown up, it would have been pretty, pretty obvious. But it seems to me that he's really like his campaign is about swagger. His campaign is about confidence. Uh, he's doubling down on this. He's this is not the point where he's going to start trying to water his message. Um, he's he's right there. But is it resonating? I mean, you know, what's what's the word on the street, I guess, in the capital about this? And, and you're right. I mean, there's a there's a battle between he and Leslie Lewis as to who's more conservative. I mean, even I guess over the weekend, uh, you know, even Maxine Bernier kind of weighed in on this and questioned Polyev's motives. Uh, he of the People's Party, of course. Uh, so he's mm -hmm. getting it from both sides here. But is is this is this just between them? And, and the protesters or the conservative party themselves looking and saying, well, maybe this is the direction in which we have to go. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because somebody like Jean Charest, for example, who would be an obvious kind of front running contender to Pierre Poly, even Pierre Polyev, even though he's obviously the, the well, by all accounts, anyway, he is the front runner. He, there's no pressure on Charest to define his conservatism in the same way as there is on Pierre Polyev, because Sheree, everybody knows, is a progressive conservative. He's got a record as a premier who's, you know, who was labeled a liberal and was wearing the liberal jersey. But of course, it works differently in Quebec. And so, you know, there's I think for Pierre Polyev, there is this sense that, OK, you know, you have become the most popular candidate in a leadership race for your party. But it's not clear that you've got the kind of support that it would take to ever become prime minister. He tends not to be the most popular candidate among Canadians. He's the front runner in the particular race. And so that's a vulnerability for him. And yes, there are people like Marjorie Le Breton, for example, we talked about last weekend, um, who are pointing out, you know, we want to win. Right. And this is not a direction that's going to be able to resonate with most Canadians. So what are we doing? I think Pierre Polyev is trying again, like to to have this very confident campaign that's about him. Not he's actually pretty light on policy commitments, right? Like he's talking about cleaning up Pearson Airport and firing Tiff Macklem. That's not a plan if you want to be prime minister, right? Like, but he's sort of being particularly vague on things. I find he's talking about freedom all the time and this sort of frustration with the sorts of things that government have, have has asked of us over the past couple of years. It's very hard to pin him down and define him. And the liberals are doing an absolutely lousy job of pinning him down and defining him. And so it seems to me that to the extent that he can keep that vagueness, he might have a broader appeal. 
but he won't be able to get away with that forever. Well, exactly. And, and I agree with your assessment of the liberals in this situation. I guess maybe they've got their own fires to put out, but they're not all nice. Yeah. Uh, are they going to wait till this thing is over and then go after that? That's, you know, the horse is out of the barn at that stage. But uh, we could go on and on and on about some of the liberal strategies <laughs> or lack thereof, I guess, over the last couple of yeah. months. I, I, I You brought up the video, Laurie. I saw the video over the weekend, too. Uh, Polyev uh, trying to, I, I guess, you know, call on his, his best Abe Lincoln, you know, with the, the barn board, you know, and the... the the plaid shirt and everything, you know, real Canadian, eh? Uh, mm. But the message was still the same. You know, after we got through that, you know, this board is just like Canada, you know, it's old and we can resurrect it, that sort of thing. Uh, interesting metaphor, but is that the sort of thing that's going to resonate with Canadians? Well, it's interesting, right? Because there's, you know, not, not to, to get too analytical about all of this, but there's there's the style of his message and then there's the message itself. And I think he's becoming, like, he's becoming very comfortable in his skin, right? Like, not that he ever wasn't, I guess, but he seems to me to be improving in terms of his communication style. Um, that video that he put out that he was walking through Pearson Airport, that was a very slick you know, piece of communication. And so he seems to be getting better at this sort of like do it in one shot, speak directly to the listener. Um, you know, he's, he's very smooth in how he communicates. He's very clear and he's, he's kind of trying to harness, I think, frustrations that a lot of people have rather than come out and say, really, you know, here are the things I want to do. He's saying, yeah, you know, you hate being stuck at the airport and I hate it too. And then with this new video, He's sort of like channeling this even, you know, kind of American reference around what is real conservatism and trying to find ways, I think, to pluck the threads of, of patriotism and give people something to kind of rally around. But again, with a, without a way that really lets anybody pin him down and define him. And so I think it's very clever. Right. Like and he certainly of all the candidates not only is he the front runner, but he seems to be the one that's really getting the most bounce these days. Whereas like someone like Scott Aitchison and Roman Baber, where are those guys, right? Like I, you don't hear as much of that at all at the, from them at all at this point. It's gonna, it was always going to be hard for the lesser known candidates in this time, but Pierre Polyev is keeping that momentum for sure. Well, simply because he's out there. I, you, you're right. I mean, yeah. that people seem to have disappeared. And now, there's questions about whether Patrick Brown's even going to go through the whole ride here. Yeah. I mean, and I understand that. He's got a job. He's the mayor of Brampton. And, uh, you know, if he if he goes all the way down to the end here and doesn't win this leadership, uh, you know, are people going to reelect him in Brampton? I mean, he's got a tough decision to make here. He does have a tough decision. The timing of it just sucks for him, although it would have been worse if if the deadline and the cutoff for the mayor, the race for mayor had been earlier. I think that would actually have been worse, whereas now he might actually have a clear sense, you know, when it comes to that August 19th deadline of whether he's got a shot at this or not. The fact that he's saying he doesn't want to run for the party if he doesn't win is another factor, too. Right. Like he's he's basically saying if this is going to be a Pierre Polyev party, I'm out. I don't want to do it. Whereas if this was a more kind of ideologically unified movement, I think it would be much harder for him to say that he would have to be much more in it to win it kind of thing, but also in it to stick around and support whoever does win. And so I think he's got a little bit of an out there, but it is a tough spot for him to be in, in the sense that he has to make a choice. And he's like, th this is an everyday concern, right? Like he's, this is, this is something people can relate to. He, he's going to, he needs to have a job. He needs to, you know, do the kinds of things that are going to, you know, bring him satisfaction and, and take care of his family. And so I think people will relate to, to that to some extent, but also, you know, if he's seeing the writing on the wall and once we go through the, you know, the process of verifying all the memberships for the party to, to say, okay, this is really it, maybe he'll make a call at that point. 
Very quickly, I, I just wanted to get your read on something else too. I'm sure you saw this over the weekend. There was a Leger marketing poll, uh, I guess, you know, in keeping with you know Canada Day, etc. Uh, asking Canadians who was the the best prime minister of, of recent history. And nine times out of ten, when they've had these things in the past, Pierre Trudeau seems to come out on top. It was Jean Chrétien this time, uh, yeah. which is a bit of a shock. And Brian Mulroney was second. Pat was there, Trudeau senior, and uh, Stephen Harper in fourth place in situations like that. I, does, I guess you, you're right. You don't want to try to read too much into that, but it's interesting that three of the four, anyway, are kind of middle of the road uh, leaders. You know, they, they and Gretchen, kind of like every man. You know, they sort of guy. What's the question they always ask of politicians? Mm-hmm. Would you want to sit down and have a cup of coffee or a beer with this individual? And I guess Gretchen kind of fit into that mold. Uh, is there anything here for the people that are running for the leadership right now to kind of read into and say, "Ooh, maybe maybe that's what Canadians want. That maybe that's what they resonate." Absolutely. But I don't know if if they're capable of making that kind of change because politics is so different now. And, it's, and completely coincidentally, I'm actually working on a project about Mr. Kretchen and oh, yeah. his. So I'm totally steeped in that right now. And so it was funny when I saw that poll come out. I'm like, oh, good, look, <laughs> like because I'm thinking about him all the time now. But he is the opposite of much of what we see in politics now. He is authentic. Love him or not. He is absolutely what you see is what you get. He doesn't mess around. He will say things that are offensive to people that are, you know, but there, but it's what he feels. He is a completely different politician than a lot of what we see now, which is, you know, they're building up this message and it's very sophisticated delivery and that kind of thing. And you don't know if the person believes it or not. That's a lot of, you know, I've seen a few articles about that and Pierre Polyev over the weekend too. Does he really believe what he's saying or is he trying to whip up you know, into a frenzy, the kinds of frustrations that people have. And he doesn't actually even identify with this himself. He's just doing it because he's going to win. Like others have, have accused him of that. Kretchen is not that guy. Again, love him or hate him. He is, he is real. He is authentic. Well, uh, my friend Lawrence Martin, who I know you're aware of, of course, when, uh, when he, he's written two books about Kretchen over the years. Yeah. And, and it's not necessarily because he agrees with everything he did. You're absolutely right. But there's something about the guy's his, his authenticity. Uh, you know, I've, I've always kind of had a problem with him, and people I've talked to about that. But they, you know, he, he is that authentic sort of an individual. Like with Kretchen, what you see is what you get. And he didn't yeah. mind ruffling feathers. And, uh, and I said, so I suppose that's something that people can kind of relate to. But you're right, it's almost a dying breed. You don't see that kind of politician anymore. This is the 10-second soundbite right now. Don't say anything that's going to get you into trouble. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, right? Like, there's a few examples I think we could take a, a very different style politics. Like, they're not all the same type of politics, but somebody like Stephen McNeil in Nova Scotia, also authentic, often got him into trouble because he didn't know how to fake anything, right? Like, he was such a clear, straight communicator, and it you know, ticked a lot of people off the way he negotiated with unions and stuff like that. And that he didn't negotiate them. He just sort of sort of dropped the decision and that was it. But he was himself. And it is, you know, it's it's an interesting strategy to just do that and see how far it gets you. And maybe a lot of authenticity, you know, a lot of authentic politicians don't last as long in their political careers because that authenticity can come back to bite you when you're not trying to build a consensus around what you're doing. But Kretchen had that you know, that style and the, the again, the a kind of a swagger where people wanted to be around him. He still lights up a room when he goes to liberal events on the Hill, right? And so he was a, a very unique combination of things as a politician. Well, and still ruffles, ruffles some feathers, too, with some of his opinions over some of the things that have been going on oh, lately, yep. too. Laurie, always yeah. a pleasure. Thanks for this. Uh, have a great week, and we'll talk again next week. That sounds great. Take care, Bill. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from Dalhousie University. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As we talk about our economy and we talk about some of the impacts and some of the reasons why things are happening to us, uh, such as higher gasoline prices, higher food prices, et cetera, et cetera, we have to ask ourselves about how much longer we can tolerate this as citizenry. And uh, because we're paying a price for what's going on in Ukraine, of course, and we've been told, that, okay, it's all for the better good uh, because of what's going on over there. And we have to punish the Russians for their invasion, et cetera. Well, uh, as Heather Schofield writes in the uh, Toronto Star, uh, Canada could be paying for the economic war against Russia for a long time to come. Heather Schofield, of course, is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star and uh, joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Heather, hope you had a great Canada Day weekend. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks. Yes, I did have a lovely weekend. And with lower gasoline prices, too, which was kind of cool, but they say that's not going to last very much longer. Uh, but the sanctions are, and, and the, the gist of the piece, great uh, read and I think very informative and very timely, is that uh, we've committed to this and our governments and our politicians have committed to this, uh, but we're paying a price and I'm not so sure that we expected it was going to be this way or it was going to last this long. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, the 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 Russia, the war with between Russia and Ukraine is not the only cause of the inflation of inflation out there. I mean, we are already before, you know, before February, when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, we were already seeing higher prices for a lot of things. And some it was already recognized that we had an inflation problem. And then then the invasion came along and it really exacerbated things. I mean, it made it so much worse. Um, but, you know, at the time, um, the, the thinking kind of was that, OK, you know, yes, uh, this this invasion is going to disrupt things for sure. And the West is going to pile on with a whole bunch of economic measures against Russia. It was kind of, you know, we've, there there have been lots of international disputes in the past with with um, where where economic sanctions and economic uh, tools have been used to to put pressure on various countries. Um, but this was a kind of a step beyond the world. Uh, the, the West, anyway, decided that they would they would go really hard at Russia um, using various economic tools. Um, and you know, obviously, if if you can make it work, right? A bloodless war is so much so much preferable than 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 blood on the ground right but it hasn't you know it hasn't delivered right away it did have some initial 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 um benefits in terms of squeezing russia but you know um right now we're dealing with some really high prices it doesn't seem like it's going to go away anytime fast well and i guess we should ask ourselves you know just how efficient this is and you're you're right i mean it made a lot of headlines when people like the prime minister and president biden uh and boris johnson and others made this commitment and said you know we're going to do this as long as it takes uh but on the other hand uh, you know well while they're talking like that you've got some other members including india for instance uh who are doing business with russia and, and uh, i think your point's well taken as you mentioned in the piece uh yeah russia's been cobbled by this it, it hasn't been you know totally ineffective but they're still surviving. Their internal economy is, is, is doing all right, grain supplies and things of this nature. So is, is this really an effective uh, sanction program that's being in place here? And is it doing the, having the desired effect on, on what's going on in Russia? Yeah, it's a good question because, you know, on the surface of it, it kind of feels, you know, there's a little bit of a sense of futility there. You know, um, the West has blocked off Russia's, uh, you know, a whole bunch of Russia's supplies. Um, we're not selling to them. They're not selling to us. Um, but they're making a bundle of money anyway. So, you know, we, we have to ask ourselves, what's the point in that? But there is, uh, you know, I've talked to quite a few people about this. There is actually a point, um, you know, 
Russia's foreign reserves are are frozen. It can't just buy and sell freely with the West. And that's, you know, for where we live in a globalized world, right? You know, that's that's not nothing for sure. So they are selling um, things at a discount to anybody that will buy from them. Um, China and India are, are pretty big customers, right? So they have money coming in there. But, you know, it, it, I think what it means is because some of those big buyers are are not on side with the, with the sanctions and the economic warfare, uh, it means that what the West is doing will take a long time. Um, it's not useless, but it does. It's a it's a slow grind. You know, it's just um, what we're what we're looking for. And I think some of the experts I, I I looked I talked to were looking very closely at import and export numbers for Russia. And you know the the they're selling they're selling a lot of stuff to the world, especially grain and especially fuel. Um, but their imports are are there's some trouble there, right? They can't just buy whatever they want to fix their their weaponry, which is a big deal right now. All their all their mil- military equipment, you know, things especially when you're in the midst of a war, things need repairing. And 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 so the the, the parts um, that they need are not easily found. And that's, uh, so they're having trouble on the import side there. And just generally, you know, stuff that they want from the West is not readily available. So that does hurt over time. And, um, you know, I, I, th- I think there's an expectation that, um, that, that, that they will be squeezed and start to feel the pinch. What about the resolve, though? It's one thing for a politician to say, yes, that, you know, we've committed to this. Uh, but the everyday population that uh, that are being impacted by this, and I, I wasn't around in World War II, but I mean, my parents told me stories about that and and the resolve that we had because we knew this was a world war and it was going on over there, and uh, we just had to suck it up back here. That's all there was to it, and we could see that this is different. It's a different situation yeah. uh, because we're you know having a direct impact on this. We're having got the rationing like they had back in those days, but prices are higher. There's an inconvenience here. And I guess the question, Heather, is how how much longer can we put up with this until we finally scream at governments and say this? Yeah, it's it's a really good point because um, yeah, there is a cost to uh, to us. It's not that it's not like we can just sit back and watch uh, Russia be 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 squeezed economically and not have it. It's not because we are in a globalized world. It does have an impact on us. I mean, the immediate impact is really huge on developing countries, right? You know, they've seen the prices yeah. of the, the things that, you know, f- food and fuel just shoot up and they are not able to, um, you know, they're, they're, they're facing a lot of widespread hunger as a result of this, you know, millions and millions of people. I think the UN estimated that there would be 43 million extra people that are, are facing uh, hunger this year because of this conflict. Um, you know, we're privileged here in Canada where it's not it's not widespread hunger in, in that in that respect. But there are a lot more people at food banks and, um, you know, just for the for the for the middle class, seeing higher prices um, is uncomfortable. So, um, you know, I, I, I would think that if I, I'm surprised, actually, that there hasn't been more of an effort to get buy in on the, on this on this front, you know, that there has to be that that kind of effort to 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 sell the Canadian public and to make it to to make everybody, I guess, uh, buy into this to this concept of, all right, we have to we have to, there will be some pain for us too. this doesn't come for free. Um, and, you know, the longer it goes on, I think, uh, you know, the more <laughs> and especially as our leaders blame the Russian conflict, the, the more people get uh, kind of fed up with the whole thing. It does seem, though, that we're heading for a very long game here. Um, you know, I was out in Saskatoon a couple of weeks ago uh, talking to a fertilizer company there. Um, Canada has the biggest fertilizer company in the world and the world really needs fertilizer 
right now um, to make up for the lack of Russian fertilizer because they are a huge producer of fertilizer as well. Um, and, you know, at, at the beginning of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, the fertilizing, the, the company Nutrien didn't want to uh, expand too much because it would cost them money to expand, right? They would have to invest in order to expand. And they weren't sure how long it would, how long this conflict would go on for. But now it's pretty obvious this is a long game. And even if somehow there is some kind of detente between Russia and Ukraine, uh, the world, the Western world in particular, is going to be, um, you know, they're going to be sidelining Russia for a really long time. So that gives Nutrient and other companies the time to actually invest and change the way they're doing business to take into effect, to take into account that Russia is not going to be fully included in the global trading system for a very long time. So, you know, there's that side of things, but it takes us a long time to adjust. And there's, you know, who knows what happens what, to prices in the meantime. You know, the, the, you know, the great tip O'Neill, you know, that all politics is local. I mean, it does boil down to the kitchen table here to a certain extent, doesn't it, Heather? Uh, you yeah. know, if, if we can't continue with this, I can't continue to pay what I'm paying for bread or for gas, etc., uh, we're going to put pressure on our elected officials, and and those elected officials kind of like to get reelected. Uh, yes, so there's do. there's going to be some concern. Now, we, I don't hope anyway that there's a federal election coming up anytime soon. But you know, Boris Johnson, Biden's already under a great deal of pressure, and the midterms are coming up, and he, he's kind of between a rock and a hard place uh, about what they're going to do here because the outcry is there, and I just have to wonder how deep is the resolve from the average citizen to say, yeah, we can do this. Yeah, the, the politics is a, is, a, is a huge factor here. Um, you know, Biden has made fighting inflation his top priority. Um, so what does that mean for, for the, for, but he's also said, you know, just on Friday, I think he just, or Thursday, he said, uh, you know, whatever it takes uh, to, to um, protect mm. your, Ukraine against Russia. So how is he going to square that circle? Um, you know, here in Canada, uh, yeah, as you say, we don't have a, an election on the horizon as far as I know. Um, but the opposition, the conservatives have, you know, they keep talking, they blame um, our, the inflation solely on the federal liberals. Um, so that uh, is a discourse that's kind of, you know, they're cutting the whole Russia conflict out of that that uh, analysis. Um, so it puts the liberals on the defense on on a couple of fronts, you know, like how long are they, how, how are they going to show um, people in Canada that that inflation is under control, you know, especially if it's kind of out of their hands, right? If it's a, if it's a Russia, Ukraine thing, if it's a, you know, the, the, the policy instruments are in the hands of bank of Canada and yet they're being slammed by the conservatives to you know do something and, and do it right away. Uh, it's, it's a tough one for them. And um, you know, I think they've been a little bit slow to um, really take, take it on in a forceful way, you know, to try to persuade the Canadians that, okay, you know, inflation, this is what we're going to do. And Russia, Ukraine, we have to, we're in there for the long haul and this is how we're going to deal with it. Well, and their attempt to do that failed miserably, as you mentioned in the piece in the star, uh, you know, when finance minister slash deputy prime minister Freeland uh, made her announcement about eight or nine days ago now, uh, it was really just kind of a rehash of stuff they'd already talked about six months before. And, and the immediate reaction was, yeah, we already knew that and it's not helping. So what are you guys really going to do? And, yeah. and, you know. Yeah, um, you know, I wouldn't say it failed miserably. It didn't. I mean, it kind of was uh, anticlimactic in, in, because, as you say, you know, it was a list of already uh, announced measures um, and they collected them all together and added them all up. Um, but, you know, there are quite a few people in the country that would say now is not the time to be, you know, creating new programs and spending more and more and more because that's just going to make inflation worse. Um, but, you know, what I'm kind of looking for is 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 uh, a federal effort to, you know, look, really look 
at what is uh, driving up the, the very micro factors that, that are driving up inflation, you know, is it a problem with moving goods from here to there? And if so, what are we going to do about the rail lines, the ports, you know, the, the trucking and shipping and so forth? Is it a factor of, you know, we're missing these key components? Is it a factor of, you know, are, are, is everything getting gummed up at the airports because we don't have enough labor? Like, let's focus really, really hard on getting that labor supply going. Um, and, you know, me- very concrete measures like that. Um, you know, there's not going to be any kind of magic bullet here where where inflation is going to be able to go away unless, you know, the, ha- the Bank of Canada comes down really hard with high interest rates, which will cause a recession. Uh, which is going to, again, you know, have an impact on consumer confidence as well. So, I mean, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. But your, yeah. your, your point's well taken. I mean, there's a conflation here of so many different things uh, of supply chain issues that existed before Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, of labor shortages that have re- resulted of the pandemic, on and on it goes, uh, and and of course, as you mentioned, the sanctions and and the the impact it's having. But you've been doing this for a long time, Heather. You know down well that eventually people just blame the government, no, no matter yes. where the extraneous factors might be. I'm suffering. You're not doing anything for me, so it's your fault. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think you know we we have this kind of uh, compounding of of crises. I, I I'm I'm calling it an era of perpetual crisis, and there has to be I think a, a new kind of effort to figure out how do you do politics in this in this in in, in a time when you know we might have one crisis that you're able to resolve, but it's replaced by another one or overlapping with another one. Like right now we've got several going on at the same time. Um, so how do you, you know, how do you govern? How do you do politics? How do you, how do you form economic policy at a time when you have so many crises happening at the same time? And, and you have to assume that, uh, you know, these aren't not, they're not just going to resolve themselves and we get back to so-called normal. I think so-called normal is, is, something that is memory right now and uh you know like the 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 pre-pandemic days whatever they meant to you it's it's going forward is going to look quite a bit different do you get the sense though because i know when you talk to some economists they say look at i know this this sucks right now but it's cyclical uh you know the the economies ebb and flow and and we're just waiting for this to it'll ride this out and it's going to get better but it seems to i I think an awful lot of canadians at least that's the feeling i'm getting in, in talking to our listeners uh, that they don't see that ha- happening. There's too many other things affecting this, as you say, the war and 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 some other supply chain issues right now. That that, in some way, shape, or form, governments are going to have to do something to try to get us through this. When, uh, you know, you've got Doug Ford here in Ontario saying, "Okay, I'm going to knock the the provincial gas tax uh, off for a little bit," but that's only for a few months actually, and then we're going to be right back into it again. Uh, as almost as if they're hoping against hope that things are going to get better on their own. Yeah, there's a, I mean, Christopher Freeland did put her finger on that a, a couple of weeks ago when she said, you know, our, our economy is growing and we've, we've fully recovered the, from, from, from the pandemic and our workforce is uh, not only replaced all the, all the jobs that were lost, but, you know, we're, we're now on a, at, a, at a point where every, you know, more people have jobs than they did before and there's a labor shortage. Um, but at the same time, we're not feeling like everything's great. We're feeling pretty crappy. And why is that? So, you know, it, it certainly does come back into, you know, people feeling not good about about their the, the people who are le- the political leaders or not good about their bosses. And, um, you know, I, I do wonder, like, you know, where do, where do we go from here? Um, does it lead to governments doing, you know, taking <laughs> taking um, kind of 
irrational measures in order to make people happy? Does it lead to what we see in Europe right now, which are a lot of strikes, right? Because part of the reason we're feeling unhappy right now is inflation is so high, wages aren't keeping up. And so people are going out on the picket line to say, give us uh, give us better wages so that we can at least afford to keep our, to maintain our standard of living. Um, so, you know, this is a not smooth sailing by, by any means. I mean, uh, for, for Doug Ford to go and say, okay, a few months of a, a gas tax, you know, he's clearly betting um, that inflation will have peaked by then and that prices will start to come down on their own at, at that time. You know, maybe, maybe that could be the case. Um, there were, you know, a couple months ago, there were a lot of projections that inflation was going to peak around now and then come back. But, the, but now people are changing their minds because there's a whole bunch of different factors out there, you know, just, just making sure that oil and gas stays really high. I mean, it's it's not there you know a few months of a band-aid here or there it doesn't seem to be uh, a winning recipe at this point yes uh you can read the uh, piece by the way uh, at uh, com, and uh, the piece is in there for everyone to read here why canada could be paying for the economic war for a long time heather a pleasure as always thanks so much for the time today okay my pleasure have a great day you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml Lots going on that uh, we want to cover on the program, and uh, including uh, what's going to be happening with uh, the pharmaceutical program. That was a, a key part, of course, of the the federal election campaign a few months ago, as you recall. Uh, and it's not a new issue, but a national pharmacare program. Uh, the NDP have been pushing this for quite some time. The liberals have been talking about it, uh, and uh, others have simply dismissed it as being unaffordable. Uh, but that's a word that gets bandied around an awful lot when we start talking about prescription drugs as unaffordable. Uh, you know, what about pricing? What about the development of new product? Uh, what about research and development uh, for new drugs? And, and that's got to be part of the equation. Uh, there's been, a, 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 I think, a deep uh, insertion of politics into this debate. And uh, we're always looking for people that are going to be more pragmatic about this and look at some of the, the solutions uh, that are available to us right now. And uh, our next guest has uh, talked about that. There's an extensive report that's just been released uh, by the uh, folks that have done the research into this. Uh, Richard C. Owens is a Monk Senior Fellow with the McDonald-Laurier Institute, who has extended this. Uh, he's a, a lawyer who specialized in business and commercial law for some time. And uh, Richard C. Owens joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. Oh, we just had a tech problem here. Okay. We'll reestablish contact with Richard in just a couple of seconds here and uh, and and talk about this uh, very extensive report uh, because this impacts just about every one of us in, in some way shape or form and and the impact that it has sometimes well some of the factors or you might even have a drug plan with uh, your employer which is great news i suppose if you can uh, but what happens then is the same thing with so many other aspects of our medical system where we tend to think that uh, this stuff is free it's all covered and it's not uh, and there's a lot of money involved in this, as you might expect in the pharmaceutical uh, business, uh, because of research and development and looking for new products. And uh, and there's a there's a case to be made for that. I mean, that's that's simple logic, really. Uh, you know, the, the medications that are available to us right now are available by and large because of the work that the companies have put in, the research and development to looking for new technologies, new way for doing things. And, and it, it's time consuming and very expensive. So one of the arguments that the, the pharmaceutical industry has made constantly is, look, it stop going at us about high drug prices. We have to cover our costs. And you can understand that logic, that if you say, okay, fine, we're going to put a cap on these, then, you know, there goes our R&D money. And, and then way we're not going to be able to develop a lot of these new products. And, uh, you know, is that a legitimate argument? Is that 
something that's going to make people say, well, I guess we're just going to have to, you know, grin and bear it and we're going to have to pay higher prices. But on the other hand, there's always a, a, a need on behalf of, of the populations uh, to say, look, you got to give us new product, new technology. The, you know, we just went through a pandemic, for heaven's sakes. And, you know, when the pandemic started, we did not have, uh, you know, we did not have uh, inoculations for COVID-19. Well, now we do. Uh, that did just happen by circumstance or happenstance. It, it happened because of research and development that went on. So where are we with a program like this and how do we address this? I believe we've uh, reestablished a, a contact now with uh, Richard C. Owens uh, from uh, the uh, McNaught Laurier Institute to talk about this. Richard, I hope we've, our, our connection is better. Thanks for joining us on the program today. Thank you so much for having me and for putting up with connection difficulties. It's nice to hear you. Yeah, well, it's, it's, that's one of the new realities, I guess, that we're facing these days as well. <laughs> Uh, Richard, talk to us about, uh, by the way, congratulations for tackling this this very, very controversial subject because there's so much uh, rhetoric, and as I mentioned, just as we were trying to reestablish contact, uh, there's a lot of politics in the debate right now, depending on political ideologies and things of this nature, which I think kind of clouds the issue for Canadians. Uh, so the paper here is exposing 12 myths that support uh, drug price controls and harm our health system. Uh, there's probably more than 12. I mean, how did you f focus on? Are these the main ones here that, that, that you thought were maybe going to be most helpful in giving us a, a clearer picture as to what actually is going on? Yeah, well, th thank you, first of all, for your congratulations. And yes, that's, that's essentially it. Um, we didn't need too long a list of myths. But what I tried to do was get at the ones that seemed to most fundamentally underpin our misguided approach to, um, to, to pharmaceutical pricing which has you know, made an enemy of the pharmaceutical industry to Canada and made it hard for us, as you were saying, to get vaccines and other treatments during the pandemic uh, and have led to a dismal fall off in life sciences investment in the country and make it much harder for us to get access to the drugs that we need in Canada. So let's let's talk about the realities here, as opposed to the myths, uh, because one of the arguments uh, that we've heard for years now, and and it, it's become a very polarized argument, is uh, you've got to put a cap on prices because people just can't afford these things anymore. And yes, it's wonderful that they're developing new technologies and new medications, but if we can't afford to buy them, uh, what good does it do us? So governments, it's your job right now to put a cap on these. And it's all going to work out in the long run. That seems to be the, the philosophy of some people right now. Let's, let's talk about that one. Sure. Um, the problem is it's such, it's such a blunt instrument, first of all. You put a cap on prices, it doesn't help the people who can't afford drugs. It simply makes drugs unavailable for everybody. Uh, it's not a, a, a broad price cap is not a program that's targeted at the less advantaged at all of the program that benefits the better advantage. You know, most people in Canada do not have a problem affording the drugs that they need. The overwhelming majority um, can. The great majority actually has insurance to cover drug costs. So even if drug costs were to go up a little bit, it's not going to affect us very much. That's not to say that we shouldn't have programs that target the most needy. We should, but we don't. Instead, we have programs that benefit the better off at the, at the expense of the needy, and that's, that's not sensible public policy. Drugs are very expensive to develop. Many of them have very small markets. They're all pretty risky. They involve extensive potential legal liabilities, enormous compliance costs. 
And all of those costs have to be recouped in a very short space of time. And the costs are fixed. You can't wish them away by being a government and waving a magic wand and saying, let it be cheap. Can't be cheap. What we should do, if we're really concerned about price, is subsidize um, purchasing, not try to reduce price, because reducing price has the effect inevitably, as it always does, of impacting supply. If you try to force people not to charge the money they need to make a profitable venture of their business, what happens is they don't supply you. And in, in Canada, where we're quite a small market um, and an unattractive market, many, many drugs simply aren't available here. They're not brought here for registration um, because they can do better in other markets. So price controls become a very blunt tool, a very, a very wrong tool, and one that denies us the benefits of many therapies. Now, the reality of modern pharmaceutical science is that many drugs are going to be even more uh, expensive than they have been. Not, not existing drugs, but new drugs that are so-called biologics, so-called personalized pharmaceuticals. These have vanishingly small markets, but they save lives. They, they take people who may uh, be facing imminent death and give them a normal lifespan. What's that worth? Well, it's worth a very great deal. That doesn't mean that everybody's going to be able to afford it, and it doesn't necessarily mean that the public purse needs to open up to, to, to afford them. But we can't have a policy that means they never come to this country. We can't have a policy that condemns people to not have the choice, that condemns them essentially to death or sickness um, because they can't access pharmaceuticals because of our public policy. You raise an interesting point because when we see or hear of, of, of a new medication, even if it's on an American TV commercial, uh, invariably that, you know, well, that's not available here. You call your family doctor, well, we don't have it here. It's not available in the Canadian market. We naturally right. assume uh, that, well, it's because it doesn't meet the high Canadian standards that we have here. Uh -huh. Not necessarily, the, it might just be because it's not profitable for them to, to make it available here. That's exactly right. Um, you know, the, the Canadian standards are no higher than anywhere else. And in fact, uh, we, we insist too much on our own testing rather than relying on the FDA or others to do a perfectly fine job. But at any given time, about 96% of existing patented, these are novel pharmaceuticals, is available in the United States. 64% in Canada, approximately. I don't, may not have the numbers exactly right, but that's simply to say that we suffer from a great deficit of available drugs. And it is because we are a smaller and unprofitable market. In the U.S., there are drug prices are excessively high, separate problem, but it means that the, the sales are much more profitable. It also means that if there's a supply shortage, as often happens, because these things are very complex and difficult to produce, uh, and in particular, in particular now with logistical issues arising from the pandemic, there are often um, ingredient shortages. It means that Canada is going to suffer first, right? So, so we're really shooting ourselves in the foot with um, these strict, you know, anti-life sciences industry policies that make us an unattractive jurisdiction. What we should be doing is is encouraging the life sciences industry, encouraging um, investment here, and taking the economic opportunities that come with a more welcoming and optimistic approach 
to to healthcare and to the life sciences industries. If you look at pharmaceuticals, yeah, you have to pay for it <laughs> as you do for doctor salaries, as you do for hospital rent. It all costs money, but pharmaceuticals actually save a great deal of money in the in the healthcare um, system because of the impact they have on improving outcomes because of lives saved. And the overall balancing, if you can look outside the narrow siloing of price, the narrow siloing of our healthcare system budgeting process, which is quite primitive, um, these new drugs, boy, you know, they, they save a great deal of money across the board, uh, and they... Um, they save people lives, they give people better quality of life, and all of that has positive economic impacts. And we can grow with that, and we can be wealthier, and we can be happier, and we can be healthier, rather than having this constrained policy, which, you know, after all, was created simply to ease the passage of some intellectual property law reforms back in the last century. And it was done ad hoc and, you know, maybe not meant to last forever. But like any other bad government policy, it becomes the norm, and we're stuck with it. Well, I thought it was time that we re-examined it. And you know what? Actually ended. One of the other elements, and this, I guess, uh, is kind of an offshoot of the discussion about affordability, which is always seems to be the center of these yeah. discussions, I guess, is that uh, let's let's reduce the patents. In other words, it, once, once company ABC uh, develops this incredible new uh, pharmaceutical, uh, property uh it should be for everybody you know they they can own it but not forever and then it should be available for you know for uh other other companies to to be able to to work you know with the expertise that they've developed here and and that's of course the argument about generic drugs uh but right. you mentioned profitability which is a dirty word an awful lot of times when it comes to medical right. uh products and things of this nature we, we've got to get over that don't we Oh, absolutely. Um, first of all, pharmaceuticals simply aren't that profitable. There are, it, it would be in the interests of all of us if drug companies were more profitable and had more revenues to direct towards uh, research and development. It would save a lot more lives. Um, banking, uh, financial services generally, automobiles, uh, computer industries, all of these are actually a, a great deal more profitable and pharmaceuticals, which are down at the lower end of the profitability of major enterprises. Um, patents are the essential ingredient to bring together the great assembly of expertise and uh, money and physical equipment that are essential to develop a new drug, go through the years of clinical trials, go through the years of regulatory approvals for marketing in order to bring a drug to, to, uh, to, to market. And a tiny, a vanishingly small percentage of drugs that are investigated actually make it to market. So the costs of the business are enormous. The risks of the business are enormous. In order to make that investment happen, we have to have some, ex some market exclusivity for the selling of the drug. And that's um, best done by our system of patents, which is a very tightly controlled system. We don't grant patent monopolies easily. And they're granted for really quite a short time. The, by the time a drug is actually uh, available on the market, it's usually only got approximately eight years left in the patent. 
that's not a lot of time to to recoup a 2.6 billion dollar research cost not to mention all the other costs of the enterprise that go into uh, making that single drug available so you know it, it's it's really short-sighted really short-sighted to say let's reduce patents let's let's pretend that we can give everybody a right to this new creation that wouldn't have existed but for all the effort that went into it um, and 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 make the business unviable by causing people to sell their products at a price where they can't recoup their costs. So, you know, the patent system is, is it's a complex one and it's hard for people to understand, I think. But in fact, it works very well. It's well regulated by both government and private uh, intellectual property practitioners. And in particular with pharmaceuticals, it's quite finely tuned. So we know that we're not granting ex- excessive intellectual property rights uh, for market access. It works very well. And most misguided are the calls that say during a pandemic, you know, get rid of intellectual property rights. Well, how are we ever going to have business respond the miraculous way it did to, to COVID if we undercut them every time there's, a, there's an emergency? It's precisely when people are sick. It's precisely when there are emergencies that we want to uh, preserve faith in the system that makes the best minds in our society respond to our needs. The uh, report is called Reality Check, uh, Dispelling the Myths Around the Benefits of Drug Price Controls. Uh, Richard C. Owens. Uh, Richard, thank you so much for, the first of all, the great work that uh, you and your staff did on this report. And uh, thank you for spending some time with us this morning. Greatly appreciate it. I thank you so much for your interest. It's been a pleasure. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.